This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been a historic year for avalanches, and the season's not over. But you don't expect the danger to come as close as your home. And yet in Crested Butte, three people were caught in urban avalanches late last week. One was killed. Let's talk this through with an avalanche rescuer. Dale Atkins is with an Alpine team based in Evergreen, and he's past president of the American Avalanche Association. Hi, Dale. Hi. Once someone is buried in an avalanche of any kind, how long do they usually have to survive? Boy, time is the enemy of the buried avalanche victims. And there's kind of two stories to this. Either people don't have an airway and they can't breathe, and then they succumb very quickly. And the statistics tell us that by 30 minutes, only half the people survive. But for some very lucky people that do have an airway and can breathe, they can live for many hours underneath the snow. And that's what gives us rescuers hope that we can find them and help them. What do you mean by an airway? An airway is just that when you're tumbled in an avalanche, whether it falls off a roof or down a mountainside, you're going to take you're likely going to take snow into your mouth and nose. And it obstructs the airway, and you just can't breathe if that happens. Okay, so we're talking about the airway in the body, not necessarily an airway to the the above ground. Uh, And is that just a a function of circumstance, of how the snow falls, or is it possible to help yourself in that situation? Well, there are some things you can do. The problem is that when you're in an avalanche, you're tumbled about. It's like being in a raging river. So it's just hard to breathe. And you may take in snow, but what we tell people to do is yell so their friends may hear them and then shut their mouth and then try and get a hand up in front of their nose and mouth to create that airspace when the avalanche stops. I had never heard the term urban avalanche before this past week. These are also being called roof avalanches. Uh, Just briefly, how do they happen? Yeah, roof avalanches, I mean, they've been happening ever since people have been building houses and buildings in snow country. But there's four principal ingredients to an avalanche. There's a slab of snow. You need a steep slope. You need a weak layer and a trigger. And all four of those are present, whether it's a roof of a house or it's the side of a mountain. Are they very common and are they commonly deadly? They're very common Fortunately, deaths are quite rare. However, here in Colorado, we had a, a death in 1984, and then we went practically 30 years before we saw another, and we've seen three deaths, I believe, since then. And I think that's just a function of more people moving to the high country and living in snow country in the winter. And that's with avalanches in general, not just roof avalanches. Is that right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Our growing population and visitors to the mountains. It's kind of a numbers game. We've indeed seen a lot of warnings lately. Don't travel in the backcountry. Avalanche danger is too high. And it makes me think, are there conditions that are just too dangerous to even have rescue teams deploy? It's happened. It's, it's rare because usually we have the benefit of knowing where to go and how to get in there. But when we get into these conditions of high avalanche danger or higher, even to extreme, when avalanches are running naturally to the valley floor, there's nowhere to hide. And on a few occasions, we've had to back off and and wait for conditions to stabilize or try some other things to mitigate the dangers. Uh, What would that be? How can you protect yourself out there? 
Yeah, it's it's really it's using explosives. And the problem is not at the avalanche site where somebody has gotten hurt or buried or trapped, hmm. but it's getting to it where we're having to travel underneath or across other avalanche paths. Do you remember a time when you were particularly terrified to be out there rescuing? I've had a couple of close calls. Um, one, it was years ago in Alaska, not in Colorado, but uh, for a fallen climber. And we had a long snow slope that we had to get to this man, who was actually from Littleton. And right as we got to him, my partner and I, the whole slope collapsed with a whoomph. But it didn't go anywhere. And that was just pure luck. Oh, my goodness. In other words, the slide didn't occur afterwards. Right. Oh. It, the failure happened. The snow was weak enough, the weak layer. Uh, it just wasn't steep enough. And we were incredibly lucky. There's been really scary video of avalanches hitting highways and inundating cars. Is that something drivers can prepare for? They, they can. And actually, just traveling in the mountains and, well, in snow country, whether it's in plains for a blizzard or in the high country, it's having some gear in the car that will keep you warm if you're stuck for a while. But it's being aware of what's above you. When you're in this narrow canyon and tall mountains above you, you want to keep moving. You don't want to stop. You want to keep your windows rolled up so that snow, if it were to happen, it won't come blasting inside the car. And if you're trapped in an avalanche, stay inside your car. Turn it off. We don't want a gasoline engine running. So turn it off, call 911 for help, and we'll come get you. And keep your windows up. Interesting. In the last minute or so, are there, if you're going into the backcountry, and, and please, please watch for the warnings, but if you are, is there a piece of equipment you ought to have? Yeah. The first thing you want with equipment is you want to be searchable. You want to be searchable to your friends. And to do that is to have an avalanche transceiver. It's a small radio-like device that allows you to home in on your friend. And you need a probe pole to pinpoint the spot and a shovel. But it's also a really good idea to have these things called record reflectors. In the rescue teams like Alpine and ski patrols, we have these handheld radar detectors. So when you need more help than your buddies can give you, we can come find you really quickly. I see. And so this is about carrying something that's detectable. Exactly. Yeah. It makes you searchable. But here's a, a key thing I'd, I'd like to add is surviving an avalanche is all about luck. So even though you may have all the equipment, the transceivers, probe, shovels, airbags, and, and recos, you want to learn how to use it, but travel as if you left it at home because mm. it might not work for you. Don't get a false sense of security. Dale Atkins there with the Alpine Rescue Team in Evergreen. A deadly volcanic eruption made parts of Guatemala unrecognizable. And then, just as people were starting to get back to something that looked like normal, an earthquake hit. How do you recover from that kind of one-two punch with a bridge, of all things? Engineers Without Borders, based in Colorado, is helping in the recovery— and engineer Mike Paddock is on the phone from San Andres Osuna in southern Guatemala. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I understand the volcano there is acting up again, and you're on standby to move to a safer area? 
Yeah, we a couple of days ago the volcano got a little grumpy again, and so what that looks like is some loud explosions, and then we got pelted with some pretty good ash. The smell of sulfur came on us, and we also had some pretty good wind blasts um, based upon the eruption. So we got a little bit of a taste of what had happened back here in June 3rd, and of course that certainly concerned a lot of the people as it sent them back into some bad memories. Mm. Volcanoes can change the wind, huh? Yeah, that's right. You know, pretty crazy. You know, when the eruption happened, it sent a plume of ash and stones six miles into the air. Six miles, if you can imagine that. And then, of course, when all that material comes falling back down to the earth, it actually ends up creating this huge flow of material as well as wind. And that can be really fast. Uh, The flows have been measured hundreds of miles per hour. And, of course, they're extremely hot. If you touch them, they would burn you. And they really wipe out everything in their path. So that's actually the thing that's the most deadly versus uh, just the regular old lava flowing down from the mountain. Oh, I think I hear a rooster in the background. Yeah, okay. maybe that'll be uh, supper. <laughs> <laughs> volcano Fuego, Volcano of Fire, uh, indeed erupted without warning last June Ash spread across a 12-mile area, disrupted the lives of more than a million and a half people. Uh, You were there a month after the eruption. Uh, Give us a sense of what you saw then and uh, maybe how that's changed. Ryan, it was literally like looking at the planet the day after God created the heaven and the earth. It just was barren rock, sand, ash was everywhere. But now things are are looking better. You know, Mother Nature is, is rebuilding, too. We see little bits of green here and there that are springing up. It's pretty amazing how it's coming back to life. And, of course, the people are starting to put their lives back together as well. I have to think that after a volcano, many of those who are killed, uh, their remains are not immediately or ever found? Yeah, that's correct, Ryan. Sadly, and it's, you know, we lost about 500 souls to the event in June. And many of those people were not able to be found because literally their bodies were incinerated. And so that's been pretty traumatic for the families because they haven't even had any remains to go and and bury. Then this earthquake hits just last month, 6.6 magnitude. You were there for that. Earthquakes and volcanoes are pretty much uh, part of daily life here. But that 6.6, which was in comparison, you know, the earthquake that happened in Haiti was 7.0 was pretty big, and that really shocked people back into their memories as well of the post-traumatic stress that they had back in in June. People were concerned, you know, is the volcano waking up? Is there something uh, really bad that's going to be following the tremor that hit us? So it told me that the wounds of the volcano were, were really still pretty raw. All right, Mike Paddock, you're there in Guatemala to build bridges, I suppose literal and figurative. Why are bridges so important? Part of this program, we're actually building four bridges, and the bridges are being paid for by Rotary International from clubs around the globe. And the reason that these bridges are so important is they are restoring important evacuation routes in case the eruption occurs again or there's another event. Because right now, the community that we're staying in on San Andreas Osuna, they are completely isolated if there's any eruption that would end up having any of these flows go down through these riverbeds. And so to have that evacuation route is really, really important. That's why we're working quickly. This is the last bridge of the four that we're going to be completing. 
and we need to get it done this month because the rainy season will start next month. And with those rains, it'll start to bring down all that ash and debris material that the volcano has deposited up above and make the river impassable to the people. So having a bridge will certainly allow them to have access to health care and in education and markets, but the most important thing is to give them an evacuation route and, frankly, give them the peace of mind that they know that they're not going to be stranded. But I don't imagine building a bridge is a quick thing, although it sounds like you're having to make it that. Are these bridges that will last if there's, say, another quake? Or can you build a volcano-proof bridge? (laughs) That's a great question, Ryan. So these bridges are pedestrian bridges. They're not vehicle bridges. The one that we're working on right now is 308 feet long, so it's a pretty long bridge. We've built it so that it's not only that long, but also high enough to be able to withstand the first likely flows that would come down from the volcano. And the mission here is really not to be able to provide a bridge. I mean, I hope the bridge lasts for forever, you know, longer than I'm around on this planet. But the most important goal is is that it needs to last long enough for the 15,000 lives that are on the other side of the bridge to be able to get across to safety. The bridge is a literal rebuilding, but I guess you see it as a kind of emotional, even psychological rebuilding, too. Yeah. When we have a disaster, unfortunately, what happens is the fabric of the community gets stretched and torn. And what I mean by that is people lose faith in their government, their leaders, their neighbors, and sometimes even their other family members. And so the community needs something to pull it together, something positive that everybody needs and can work together on. And that's what we're seeing that's happening on this bridge. I'm so fascinated by the idea of engineers without borders. I think most people think of maybe doctors without borders and that the group is based in Colorado. How did you get associated with it? My story, Ryan, is that I worked for CH2M Hill for the better part of 25 years, of course, based right there in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, this is like the big contractor. They do all sorts of, I think they actually helped rebuild the Panama Canal. Yep, and I was involved with a lot of big projects that were over a billion dollars in size. And a little over 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with a serious form of cancer, thought that I only had three to six months to live. And at that time, my wife and I decided that We would get our finances in order so that I could spend my time volunteering to help the world with my engineering skills. And fortunately, at about that same time in 2002 is when Engineers Without Borders was formed, and it was a perfect fit for me. Hmm. And since then, I've been able to work on projects on five different continents around the globe, and it's been just amazing experiences for me to be able to help others with my engineering skills. And Mike, you're still here. Yes, I am. (laughs) Yep. Uh, I I gather you're in remission? Yes, I'm in remission, and and, uh, everything is great, and I just really feel like I've been given a gift, and it's my obligation to do what I can to uh, help others with that gift. Mike, thanks for being with us, and uh, I guess I should thank the rooster, too. (laughs) Yes, he's been a very good companion. Mike Paddock is with Engineers Without Borders based in Denver. He's in Guatemala designing and building bridges after a volcano and earthquake there. Critics of gun control often ask why pass new laws when we don't enforce the ones on the books already. 
Well, Nine News in Denver found there's some truth to that. We want to share their reporting with you as part of Sunshine Week this week, which highlights the importance of government transparency. Chris Vanderveen is investigative journalist at Nine. Hi, Chris. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Your story focused on a gun law passed uh, in 2013, I believe. Mm -hmm. Before we get into its shortcomings, what's this law supposed to do? Well, the law was designed, like a lot of laws are designed to do, to do some good. In this instance, it was designed to protect victims primarily of domestic violence. Could we pass a law that could prevent people who have been accused in domestic violence cases from having access to guns under the terms of a protection order? Lots of protection orders are issued in the state of Colorado. These are protection orders that tell the person that you are not to have guns on you during the term of this protection order. They're issued a lot. Thousands and thousands of these protection orders are issued. But as we found, they're not exactly enforced and there really isn't an enforcement mechanism. But the spirit behind this law was if you were uh, credibly accused of domestic violence, uh, the idea was that you should not have access to a firearm for a period of time. Yeah, you think of it almost as, as a cooling off period, a, t- a period where somebody, you know, th- these are everyone who looks into domestic violence realizes that these are particularly vulnerable times for victims. And we wanted to take guns out of the hands of these people in these periods when particularly when someone has been accused of a crime, a very serious crime, and they've been to the point where they's, they've been charged in that crime. At a hearing for this bill in 2013, there was testimony like this from a woman named Ruth Glenn. 20 years ago, I was left for dead after being shot three times by my husband, who at that time was also under a protection order. Left for dead. So this law passes and its implementation has been less than stellar. Help us understand that. Yeah, there's this. Uh, and, and this is this is obviously a, a sort of a cautionary tale for what the legislature is considering right now. But when we have a With law, the red flag gun law, c- correct. And we had a law that was well-intentioned by a lot of people, this idea that we could protect victims of domestic violence. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? But at the end of the day, what we found is that the law lacked really any sort of enforcement mechanism to do it. And so you give victims, and we talked to a number of people who thought that this law would protect them. And the law is not protecting them, them at all because it does not take guns out of the hands of those people. Uh, Let's listen to understand why it doesn't to a little bit more from your report. Current Denver District Attorney Beth McCann was, in 2013, a Democratic state representative and one of the main sponsors of Senate Bill 197. I've been disappointed, um, frankly, that we haven't seen a more aggressive enforcement. McCann admits it's clear the law has a critical weakness. Do we have a system now that is reliant upon the good graces of the accused to do the right thing? Yes, I would say that's true. The onus is on the accused to kind of like surrender the gun? There's this idea that, hey, sir, hey, Chris Vanderveen, if I've been accused, um, we want you to give up your guns. You've been accused of assaulting somebody. Uh, Now we need you to do this. And I need to do absolutely any proof. All I have to do is say, yeah, I'll do it. But the courts do not check on it to make sure that you've done it. Most people that we fought that, that were later on accused of very serious crimes, including murders, they had been ordered to give up their guns, but they left that section blank where they said, are you, am I going to give up those guns? They didn't. And they left that section blank and there was no punishment for them. So they went on to commit very serious crimes. Correct. 
How did Sunshine Laws, the idea of government transparency, how did that play into your ability to report this? These are the stories that are only possible with these type of Sunshine Laws in place. We found a myriad amount of information, a ton of information, simply by filing a number of open criminal... in this case, we file a lot of CCGRA, Colorado Criminal Justice. Uh, it's basically CORA for criminal records, right. although it's, it works this differently. Is an, an act for the courts, yep. a transparency. And we file a lot of those in these particular cases to find the tidbits of information on individual cases. We also file it with the state to file how many to fi- figure out how many protection orders have been issued in total, and then we had to go into court records then to see how many had actually been complied with. So what are the numbers? Like, what's the scale here? Thousands and thousands. I believe it was something like 66,000 protection orders have been issued over, since the law had been passed. And this, and this now, the story had run a few months ago. Yeah. And so there are new numbers now. And only like a small handful, maybe 100 or so, had been actually sort of signed on to. Followed up. Followed up on. Okay, so there's some change as a result of the reporting, but it's not drastic. No, what's interesting is that this law still is out there and it becomes pertinent to the red flag law because now the red flag law that's being debated in the state legislature right now, there is a very heavy enforcement mechanism Mm. that is in that. And that's really at the root of why there's such disagreement over that law right now. Okay, we have just a minute left. I understand you've had some frustration lately. Trying to get some information. Every report, yeah, every reporter is <laughs> going to have some frustration, and, and this comes down to, I mean, we all have stories constantly being told of sort of roadblocks that are put in our way to try to gain access to public information. We, I, I don't want to give, we haven't done this story yet, but I will tell you that we've been dealing a lot with HICPUF, which is the arbiter of Medicaid money in the state of Colorado, healthcare financing. Yeah, and they we've had some battles with them and try to get public information in terms of Medicaid spending on a particular drug. And that's tough when you're trying to do a story. We encounter these roadblocks all the time. Part of that is fees, too, that you have to pay for these documents. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Thank you. He's an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. We spoke as part of Sunshine Week, which highlights the importance of government transparency and open records laws. This is CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan, and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now let's mark a birthday. Barbie, the fashion doll, is 60. And virtually everyone I've told this to in the last week has a Barbie story. Barbie, you're beautiful. I loved Barbie so much when I was a kid that I actually used all of my own and all of my hand-me-downs to create a full Barbie city in about a 6 by 10 storage room off of my bedroom um, and just spent hour after hour making great memories with my Barbies in that little city. Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you. One of my dear sweet daughters left a Barbie high heel lurking in the carpet in our living room. I stepped on it with my bare feet. It was like a ten-penny nail being driven into my heel. Yowza, that hurt. Her dancing outfit rings the bell. 
At party she will cast a spell. My mother thought that Barbie wasn't wholesome enough, so instead she bought me a Tammy doll. I'm still mad about it, and I'm 60 years old now. I was more of a Skipper fan. I guess she was the younger sister of Barbie, but most importantly, when she wore sneakers, she was flat-footed. She just made much more sense physically. You can get Mattel's new Skipper and her fabulous new fashions wherever toys are sold. And this I was an older brother to two sisters. My Barbie memories are mostly stealing their dolls. I have since apologized to them. And now, I suppose I should apologize to Barbie as well. I'm sorry I put you on the ceiling fan to antagonize my sisters. I got the Barbie McDonald's Christmas morning of 1983, and I loved everything about it. Barbie's hungry. Barbie and friends. It was the booth, the menu, and even the trash can was exactly the same as a regular McDonald's. Barbie and Ken want French fries, Big Mac. And shakes for two. You got it. Barbie loves McDonald's. Did I have a Big Mac to go? <laughs> to this day, I actually have one for myself I bought 10 years ago on eBay. Happy birthday, Barbie. Happy birthday to you. Hot gown sparkles on you. She's beautiful. Now, you may think of Barbie as ditzy. But her inventor was the exact opposite. Ruth Handler grew up in Denver, and she co-founded toy giant Mattel in the 1940s. Here she is in a CBS interview. How would you describe yourself? Gutsy. I always kind of considered myself a fluke because there were no others like me. (laughs) I loved my children, but I wasn't suited to taking care of a home. Ruth Handler died in 2012. Now, as her long-legged creation turns 60, I'm joined by Robin Gerber, who wrote a book called Barbie and Ruth. She joins us from Ojai, California. Hi, Robin. Hi, good morning. So Ruth Handler was born in Denver in 1916, was raised here. How do you think that shaped who she became? Well, I think that... uh... She worked, she ended up uh, not living with her family. I think that was probably the most significant part of uh, what shaped her as a young woman. Her mother, she was the tenth and last child of Polish-Jewish immigrants. And her mother was pretty ill by the time she came along and gave her as a baby to her older sister to be raised. And the older sister, who didn't have any children herself, never had children, ran a store And so Ruth very early had this image of uh, a woman actually being an entrepreneur. I think that was very impactful for her. Do you think they did well in this store? Yeah, no, it was in a marketplace in downtown Denver. Uh, She ran, actually, she ran the diner and her husband, uh, who, um, Sarah's husband, so it would be Ruth's uh, actual brother-in-law, but he was like her father, he ran a liquor store within this big marketplace in downtown Denver. So oh. uh, that was very influential on her. It was it was a real entrepreneurial venture to do that for them. They came from, as I said, from this immigrant family. So, And they did very well, yes. They actually moved to a nicer neighborhood than where Ruth had been born. And, uh, you know, she loved Denver, but she came to California, Southern California, when she was uh, an older teenager, 
and kind of fell in love with it. I think the sunshine and the warmth is what did it. Okay. <laughs> but she worked from a, a very early age, and that entrepreneurial spirit has sort of hit her early, I guess. Ruth met her husband, Elliot, in Denver. They moved to Los Angeles during the war. And that's really where the toy making got started. How did that happen? Yes. Well, her husband was a creative genius, Elliot Handler. Uh, he was called Izzy in Denver, but she had him change his name because she was worried about anti-Semitism. And so uh, she said, now when we move to L.A., you're going to change your name and be called Elliot. And so he did. He always did what she said. That's what he said. I always <laughs> did what you told me. <laughs> uh, he was a rather shy man, but he loved to create things. And uh, during the war, he started out creating uh, sort of what we call tchotchkes out of plastic, like bookends and ashtrays. But then during the war, you couldn't get plastic. So he was using wood scraps and making dollhouse furniture. And Ruth just took it and sold it. She was a great uh, natural entrepreneur and was a wonderful salesperson, loved selling. She said it just got her high to go out and make a sale. I want to move forward just a few years. 1952, this is still well before Barbie, uh, Mattel had a toy gun. They called it the burp gun. And there's a story I think says a lot about Ruth Handler as a businesswoman. Uh, tell me about the risk she took. Yeah, well, Mattel was a growing company. They started in 44. It was a good time because the war, of course, ended in 45. Soldiers came home. There were virtually no toys on the market. Hmm. Everything had, all materials had been taken for the war effort. But here you have these soldiers coming back, getting married, families, kids. They need toys. So the company was growing and doing pretty well. And it was actually around 54, 55 when uh, the company was worth, oh, about half a million dollars. And uh, a, a uh, um, television was starting a new kind of programming with a show called the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> and it was going to be a one-hour show. And if you wanted to advertise on it, then you had to buy a year's worth of advertising and it would cost you half a million non-refundable dollars, which, of course, was the worth of, of Mattel. And they came to Ruth and said, do you want to advertise on this show? Well, toys were not advertised on television at that time. That was not how you bought toys. Toys were decided on by parents, believe it or not. And parents would look at the Sears catalog and they might show it to their child and say, well, you know, is there something that interests you? But by and large, kids were not involved in that decision. So this idea of the Mickey Mouse Club was an idea that this this buying could be turned around and they and advertisers could convince children of what they wanted and then they would go to their parents and pressure them, which, as we know, is what happens. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm and, sure any, any, any number of parents, I'm sure, are frustrated that Ruth Handler made this decision. So she put everything on the line to buy the, this year of advertising? Exactly. She bet the entire net worth of the company on something that really hadn't been done before for toys. And she did it with a, a toy that they had just created called the Burp Gun. And I'm sorry to say that the Burp Gun was essentially an automatic rifle. Okay. Um, and this was very popular at the time. Guns were a very popular toy in the 50s. And Mattel was probably the best maker of toy guns. Their, uh, Elliot was very committed to making realistic-looking guns. 
And so they advertised the burp gun on the Mickey Mouse Club. And it took about six weeks of advertising, during which Ruth was very nervous because the gun was not selling at first. And then suddenly, after six weeks, it just went off the charts. She couldn't keep up with the demand. A big risk, but one that paid off. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about Ruth Handler, who was from Colorado, from Denver. She was the creator of Barbie and uh, of Mattel as well, co-creator of the toy company. And Barbie was Ruth's idea. We'll, we'll talk about the doll's impact on society, good and you know maybe bad, shortly. But l- let's start with this. What made Barbie different from other dolls back in, I think it's like 59? Yeah, that is the, the core question about the doll. Ruth had a daughter named Barbara, and she would watch her play with her friends, and they loved to play with paper dolls, which were adult dolls, and pretend to be adults. And she watched this and said, well, they need a doll to play at being adults, and there, one did not exist. There was not a doll that really looked like an adult. There was a play doll. There were some display-type dolls. And so that was the impetus behind the idea of actually making a doll like that. But, of course, her designers, who were all men, including her husband, said, don't be ridiculous, Ruth. Mothers will never buy a doll with breasts for their daughter. Oh, I see. Uh, versus dolls that had just been babies to that point. In fact, I think the doll bombed when it debuted at the International Toy Fair in 59. Yeah, exactly. And and you're right. There were only baby dolls, and Mattel did not want to get into the doll market. They were not in the doll market. And Ruth prided herself and Elliot on getting into the markets in a new way. So this was a new way to get in. She finally convinced the research department after she found a prototype in Europe. And they made the doll and she debuts it at Toy Fair, as you had to do with toys. And the buyers, again, all men who came in, especially the Sears buyer, they bought the most of anything, uh, essentially ignored the doll. So she was desperate. She was really worried. How'd she make it happen? Brilliantly, as always, she had hired a psychologist. This was a new thing. She had hired one of the first madmen to do focus groups, which no one did. Again, it was very innovative. And he discovered that uh, mothers would allow the doll to be bought if it looked like if they uh, marketed it as a teenage fashion model to teach the daughters good grooming. And so that's how that ad that you played at the top of the segment, that's how that got developed. It was around showing Barbie as this teenage fashion model that girls could get and learn to dress nicely and fix their hair nicely, and mothers bought into that. And so they started running these ads based on his research. His name was Ernest Dichter. And at first the doll didn't sell, but as soon as school let out in June, girls couldn't get enough of these dolls. So they sold 300,000 Barbies the first year. So the the doll was indeed named after Ruth Handler's daughter, Barbara, and the male doll can after uh, Handler's son. I understand they didn't like that much. No, they didn't. I think you could understand, uh, after all, Barbara having this doll that did have rather prominent breasts and this very sexualized figure, which we it, it absolutely was. I think she probably endured some uh, being made fun of. And of course, the Ken doll is not anatomically correct. 
And so same for him. So no, they were not particularly happy about it. You know, I think that Mattel has really struggled over the years with what Barbie is or should be. I mean, there wasn't an African-American Barbie for a long time. And the message earlier on was much more about Barbie having fun with her friends, you know, over pursuing a career, for instance. Uh, it's It seems it took Mattel a while to come around, but now there's all kinds of Barbies, scientist Barbies and Barbies of every hair type and complexion, I guess. Yeah, um, I actually just wrote the 60th anniversary book for Mattel, uh, which is going to be called Barbie Forever, and that'll come out later this year. And in doing that, I was actually delighted to learn, as I interviewed people at at Mattel headquarters, that they've returned to Ruth's vision, because she had a very simple, high-concept idea. Little girls want to play at being big girls. And Mattel has really come back to that. Their tagline now is, you can be anything, and that's what Barbie is meant to represent to allow girls to think about being anything. And as you say, they're coming out with non-traditional dolls that represent non-traditional careers like Beekeeper. Oh. Uh, There's a whole National Geographic line that's coming out this year, uh, an Explorer Barbie, that kind of thing. And then they have these dolls that are modeled after not just celebrities, but sports stars, historic figures like uh, Frida Kahlo, Rosa Parks, So this really is going back to Ruth's original vision, and I think it's great. And sometimes Mattel has missed the mark. I think of a conversation I had with a CU professor who has studied this, and there was a gamer Barbie, for instance, that kept getting her computers infected with viruses and having her male colleagues fix the problem. (laughs) So this this is an evolution, I suppose. Robin, thanks for... It is an evolution. (laughs) I suppose, do you have a Barbie? I do have some Barbies, yes, mainly President Barbie. That's the one I uh, like the best. (laughs) President Barbie. That's Robin Gerber. She's the author of Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and woman. It's about Ruth Handler, who grew up in Denver. The listeners we heard at the top of the show were in order. Casey Fithian of Greeley, Jim Clark of Arvada, Lynn Fox of Thornton, Keely Boyd of Denver, Matthew Lilly of Edgewater, and Angie Cavallari of Denver. We're going to leave you with another Barbie fan, nine-year-old Sydney Wynn. She told us she doesn't really care about those career Barbies. I don't really do jobs when I play with them. I usually, like, they go out to a restaurant and then something dramatic happens. But she didn't specify what. This is Colorado Matters from CPO. A big honor for Ken Burns. The Library of Congress has created an award in his name to give to filmmakers who bring history to life. I spoke with Burns last fall. He was coming to Colorado to receive the Wallace Stegner Award from CU Boulder. And I asked him about one of his favorite aspects of Western history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It's funny, you know, it is almost in a way a classroom cliche. (laughs) Uh, We think we know about it, but I don't think we really fully appreciate, or or many people don't, uh, what it meant. It's an entirely bittersweet moment, of course. It's uh, for the Europeans in this continent a chance to sort of see what the $15 million that Jefferson had paid for Louisiana bought. 
And so it's this amazing mission, not dissimilar to the moon mission, only we're out of touch with mission control for just a few minutes on the other side of the moon. Here, Jefferson didn't hear anything for years. Well, Lewis and Clark and their men and then the French trader Charbonneau and his wife, Sacagawea, and their baby uh, all trekked across the country, intersecting with Native peoples, uh, many, many nations that would forever be completely changed by the contact with Lewis and Clark and, and the world that they were ushering into this continent. I, I love it. The diaries are accessible. You can read them this day in their handwriting. The ordinary soldiers, uh, Meriwether Lewis and his profound melancholy that would lead eventually to his suicide, William Clark, more of a hail fellow, well met, and just their interactions with the Missouri River and then later the Columbia and its tributaries and the wonders that they saw, the scenes of visionary enchantment they, they recorded almost daily, uh, their intersections with those Native cultures. They were coming into places and telling people uh, who had lived on that land for hundreds of generations that that land now belonged to a great white father back in Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Right. This is such a picture into your passion, into your mind. And I also want to talk about your 2009 film about national parks because um, it declares that they are America's best idea. And I thought that was a lovely way of describing the parks. Why do you think it's America's best idea? Well, we're actually stealing from Wallace Stegner, the namesake of this prize, uh, to set aside for the first time in human history land, not for the benefit of royalty, not for the benefit of the very rich, but for everybody and for all time. It was a uniquely American thing. It could not have happened anywhere else except in a country which had decided to share its riches with everyone, or at least ideally share its riches with everyone. And so we were able to set aside lands. Abraham Lincoln signed a bill in the middle of the Civil War, setting aside this beautiful tract of land, Yosemite, that would go to the care of a committee uh, determined by the California legislature. And then when there was spectacular land, uh, Wyoming territory that didn't have any government to oversee it, it became the world's first national park, and, and Yosemite would eventually catch up and join the fold. But we set in motion this utterly American thing. And it's an amazing journey that isn't just landscape and waterfalls and canyons, but it's about species diversification and saving species. We wouldn't have the buffalo around if we didn't have Yellowstone. We also have in the Everglades, which could have been endless series of strip malls and and golf courses and condos, uh, one of the most diverse environments in, in the world. And uh, we then expanded it the idea is growing, we hope, like us. When Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, he meant all white men of property free of debt. Uh, we don't mean that now. We've expanded it. And what you find in the parks is that the park idea evolves beyond scenery, beyond even species diversification to history. And we're the only country on earth that saves evidence of, of a darker side. There's, there's slave plantations along with the cabins of the slaves that made the comfortable life of that slave owner possible. It, in Sand Creek and Washita on the Great Plains in Colorado, you've got monuments to uh, the massacre of unarmed Native American women and children by the U.S. cavalry. There's Manzanar, the site of uh, 
the Japanese internment, Shankville, PA, where uh, the brave souls on United Flight 93 brought the plane intended for the White House or the Capitol to the ground in Pennsylvania is a site. We've been able to look at our history and understand and tolerate its complexity and then reflect it back to us. Well, Ken Burns, I wonder if we might just take a question from a listener at this point. Chris Lowell of Denver, in addition to asking if he can have lunch with you, uh, wonders, <laughs> is our polarization actually at a high point? And I wonder, with your long view of history, if there's any light you can shed on on this moment. Well, you know, historians make pretty lousy prognosticators of what's going to happen. But but we bring a kind of optimism, I believe, to the present, because in a way we've seen it all before. Not precisely this way. History doesn't repeat itself. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. Those are wonderful phrases. Mark Twain is supposed to have said that, um, and his his adventures in the West are as, as important as any. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Huh. And I think that whenever I work on a project, uh, when you finish it, you realize the extent to which aspects of it or many aspects of it correspond. Human nature doesn't change. That's the thing we all have to understand. And so we will be confronted with greed, but also generosity, with purience, but also puritanism. And we're in a constant flux about how to relate and deal with all of those things. And I, I think that for those who feel discouraged right now. Uh, you can point to the Civil War, to the Vietnam era, to many other places in American history where there were similar sorts of things. They're not exactly the same. And so our challenges and our fragility uh, remain, Chris, but I think that we can see these things as great tests. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. I, I agree with the initial question. There's too much pluribus and not enough unum, as the late uh, historian <laughs> Arthur Schlesinger was fond of saying. And I've spent my entire professional life trying to speak to unum. I don't have a political point of view or an axe to grind in my films. I'm interested in sharing our common stories. Can you have time for one more question? Of course. So you're receiving the Wallace Stegner Award uh, at CU Boulder. Stegner was a, a novelist, an environmentalist who'd grown up on the Northern Plains. And I, I wanted to play this from a documentary, not one of yours, but this is called Wallace Stegner, A Writer's Life. I think maybe two or three kinds of, of uh, experiences made a profound impression on me when I was five or six years old. One of them was sleeping under a wagon and, and feeling that wind come across the grassland for hundreds of miles. The, the, the bigness of night outside and the bigness of stars and the littleness of, of us in our absolutely unsheltered condition, nothing but a wagon to sleep under. I love that because it talks about, in a way, his smallness um, in relation to the universe, really. And I, I wonder if we might wrap up with when you have felt small, Ken Burns, when you have felt... Uh, small in the enormity of what's around you? Well, I think the West and the West of the imagination and the West of mythology as well as the West of fact provide us all, Easterners as well as Westerners, with a chance to experience what one observer of the National Park said was our atomic insignificance. And I think Stegner was 
understanding it. I've experienced it many, many times in and out of the park, in the gigantic vistas of the West, in which you realize that you are but the tiniest, tiniest drop in an ocean. And that atomic insignificance, as this observer said, has a funny way of connecting you to everything else and inspiriting you, making you feel bigger. As the egotist in our midst is always diminished by his or her self-regard. And I find our ourselves out in nature, getting out of the rut of the normal day-to-day, permits us to have such experiences. That's what brings me to the West every year. That's what forces me to expand my horizons. I live in rural New Hampshire. It's incredibly beautiful there. But you can't see at a turn 100 miles or 200 miles Mm -hmm. and watch storms moving across southern Utah from uh, Monument Valley, watching them move across like Portuguese man of war, or realize that it's 76 miles on the dusty dirt track to the next town in north central Montana. Well, Ken Burns, it's been fun to hear you speak in poetry often. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Documentary filmmaker Ken Burns speaking with me in September. Since then, the Library of Congress has created an award in his name to recognize documentary filmmakers who tell stories of American history. That's our story for today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.